Today I'd like to share with you a message entitled, From Out to In. From Out to In. Let me pray. God, thank you for this gathering. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. As we wrestle with the chaos of this world, as we struggle each day with the emotional ups and downs and the ebbs and flows of difficult, challenging relationships, of disappointments, of tragedy, I pray that today we would embrace you, a God who comes down and is no longer out there, but is also in here with us. So help us to discover more today, the beautiful depth of that reality. And I pray in your name, amen. We have been going through a series, started a series last week entitled Incarnation, which is Latin for to be made flesh, to take on skin and bones. And our passage for today regarding from out to in comes from Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Last week, we did some heady stuff. We talked about incarnation taking on flesh, and last week, we started with the head. We started with old dead guys, um, Plato, Heraclitus, and some of their ideas and their concepts, and we talked about how chairs in their philosophical framework aren't the real thing. They're just a a manifestation of the real thing, because the real thing is the idea. The real thing is the concept. The real thing is the form that exists in your mind. And we talked about that whole process of abstraction is something that's been done by philosophers throughout the years and is also done by children. Uh, We all abstract. We all take something that is concrete and we turn it into a concept or an idea that we can know about even though the physical form is not there. And so we talked a little bit about how while philosophy and adolescent psychology and the scope of human mythology and uh, ideas and religions are trying to reach up to what really is the ultimate and greatest idea— This God in the incarnation is actually trying to come down, to reach down, to become flesh and bones. And so while we are in the habit of taking flesh and bones and try to get to something higher, the incarnation tells us that the higher thing, the idea, the concept, or what is ultimately known as the logos, the uh, ultimate concept, the divine idea is actually coming down here. And so flesh and bones is actually what is most important. And the reason why it's coming down is because there is a chaos into which this idea is coming to help us make sense of it, to help bring redemption into it. So we talked about the logos, the idea or the concept of the ordering of the entire universe is actually becoming skin. And like Amy Jill Levine just said, this tells us that your body, your skin, it matters. 
So the incarnation is going from up to down. I was having some conversations. Some of you said, hey, I loved what Pastor Kevin said. I have no idea what he said, but it was really fascinating. <laughs> my favorite quote so far comes from my nephew, Gabriel. He's in the back listening to the message, and I was talking about Plato's philosophical idea. And he's back there listening to me say, well, the chair isn't really real. The idea of the chair is really real. And he goes, no, this is real. And I really appreciated that comment from him because once again, coming from the mouth of babes, coming from the mouth of children, coming from the youngest amongst us are some of the most profound, deep, insightful theological concepts that we could ever understand or what these scriptures are really saying. So Gabriel says, no, no, this is real. And yes, that's the whole point of incarnation. And so one of the encouragements from last week is to ask the question, for those of us who like to theologize, for those of us who like to get into ideas and concepts, for those of us who like to think about high philosophical ideas and ideals, the question that is challenging for all of us in the incarnation is how do we put skin on it? How do we take this idea of God who is love and put some skin on it? and do something in this world, and be something in this world that incarnates this beautiful, brilliant gospel that we follow. Today, as a follow-up from up to down, I want to go from out to in. Sherry Turkle is a sociologist, but a theorist around technology and society, and she's written several books. Um, Alone Together was a book that I read a while ago regarding how we are deeply connected by these things, these devices, these electronic toys, but yet somehow by connecting through this device, we are actually much more alone than we've ever been before. And it was a really um, interesting wake-up call for all of us to consider deeply about what are these technologies and what is it that we're doing. Her most recent book is entitled Reclaiming Conversation. Reclaiming Conversation. Now, there's a lot of different things that she studies there, but one of the main concepts, one of the main things, one of the main theses through her book is that every single one of us deeply long for connection, for community, for relationship. But the problem, at least in our day and age, is that something has come in between us. Something has invaded our space. And she has studied deeply and done a, a couple uh, studies herself regarding what is actually happening to the kinds of relationships and the kinds of conversations that we have as a result of now the invasion of all this digital technology, including handheld devices, social media, etc. She talks a little bit about how conversations and the depth of conversations actually decreases as a result of having these devices within our hands. She talks about how it is also increasing our heightened awareness of boredom. Uh, she documents how some people say that they can't go without their device more than 60 seconds, 90 seconds, or whatever it is, and they will find themselves, even at funerals, when it gets boring, needing to check a look and see what happens, happen to be going on on social media. And she documents this not only at funerals, birthday parties, church services, right during the boring bits is where you start saying, okay, well, let's see what else is going on. She talked about this one uh, word. I'd never heard about it before. Has anybody heard of the word fubbing? Fubbing, which I feel 
really careful about saying. It is snubbing somebody by using your phone when you are having a conversation with them. So you snub them in person and you're having a conversation with somebody and something happens and you look down and you're like, and that is a term that's now known as fubbing. Some in the teenage world use fubbing to describe how their activity as a teenager, their hand is in their pocket and they're actually texting while they're staring you straight in the eye and having a conversation. And they're good doing this. Yes, I'm paying attention. But inside of their pocket, well, that's back when Blackberries had keyboards. I don't know how they do it with iPhones nowadays. So there must be some, some particular way. So she talks about this. And she talks about how part of what's happening to the level of our community, the level of our conversation is we just can't wait until we see what the next person is going to say. There's something going on that I am missing out on. And the very mere existence of... (laughs) Some of you are like, ooh, Christmas list. The very mere existence of these devices, she says, it's not just that we are on the devices. She has studied that even the device itself, if it's just sitting on the table face down, you can notice significant decline in the depth and the level of connection, community, and relationship simply by the presence of the device. Why? Because unconsciously, every single one of us are starting to be conditioned that something else, something more important may be happening And if I were to enter into a deep conversation with you, if I were to enter into some sort of connection, intimate conversation, it might get interrupted. And if it got interrupted, well, then what's even the point? And that's how we feel as a result. She calls this a crisis of empathy. Now, to be fair and to be clear, she also says she's not anti-technology. And she's not saying that we should do away with our phones and our devices and that you should never be on social media. She is not saying that. In fact, she says it this way. I'm not asking us to turn away from our phones. I'm actually asking us to do the opposite, to stare and peer into them actually more deeply and ask some questions. What is this possibly doing to us? And what she has analyzed and what she has reported on through this work, as well as in collaboration with others, is before, in her book Alone Together, we saw the fragmentation of community. The next step in this digital age is a crisis of empathy. We can no longer feel what another person feels. Our emotional connections are no longer what they are supposed to be. She says it this way. Now we have arrived at another moment of recognition. This time, technology is implicated in an assault on empathy. We have learned that even a silent phone inhibits conversations that matter. The very sight of a phone on the landscape leaves us feeling less connected to each other, less invested in each other. One of the ways she illustrates this is through a word that she calls friction-free relationships. This is a term that apparently is being used now for the kinds of relationships that we have. So if we have a relationship face-to-face, 
there's a lot of potential friction that can happen. And as a result of that friction or the, the kind of interaction that we have when we have a face-to-face conversation is more and more challenging and more and more difficult, especially since it's easier to have that conversation over text. And part of, part of her book is she's documenting how parents and children are no longer resolving conflicts face-to-face. They're doing it over the devices, etc. And that's what's known as friction-free relationships. But there are some consequences to this. It may actually be easier to reconcile over a device. It may actually be easier to break up over social media, which everybody says not to do, but yet everybody does it. But the problem is, when we participate in those kinds of behavior, we are not actually feeling the full effect of our words, of our actions, of our behaviors, because we have now removed ourselves one level. There are low demands when we interact with one another on these devices. There's a lack of intimacy, and in many ways, there's no mess. I've done what I need to do, and I can leave it off to the side. Crisis of empathy, friction-free relationships, and then this line that I'll sum up here. Research shows that those who use social media the most have difficulty reading human emotions, and here's the key thing, including their own. Now again, we're not saying that the device or the technology or the social media is the evil. This stuff is going to be with us to stay. This stuff is going to be with us for the rest of our existence. But the question that everyone is asking, Sherry as well as others, is what is it doing to our soul? What is it doing to our spirit? What is it doing to the quality of relationships? And what the heck does all this have to do with incarnation? I know some of you are asking that question right now. What I'd like to do is ask the question then, what is empathy? If there is a crisis of empathy, if Sherry's work has merit, and there's a crisis of empathy, what fundamentally is empathy? Why is it important to our human existence? And why is it critical that we pay attention to even our own emotions in that kind of relationship? And I can't think of anyone better to explain this than Brene Brown. So what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. (laughs) Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, climb down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, (laughs) it's bad, uh uh-huh. No, you want a sandwich? (laughs) Um, 
Empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. At least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. (laughs) John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. Sympathy is feeling bad. Empathy is feeling with, to feel with. The word empathy actually comes from some Greek words, em and pathos, meaning to feel inside or to be in the same feeling as somebody else. There are a couple things said in that video that I'd like to flesh out for us and I think have some really profound connections. And for us to explore the theology and the idea and the concept of incarnation of a God that came down here, that went from up to down, the next level of that up to down movement is a God that is no longer out there, but is in here with us. It was said in the video, rarely can a response make it better. What makes something better is connection. How many of you have said, shared something deep, personal, hurtful with somebody else, and they immediately try to fix it? And the thing is, stop fixing it. Don't give me an answer. Don't give me a reason. I just need somebody to hear me. So a response to those kinds of sharing is never helpful. And it's really kind of a distancing phenomena. It's essentially saying, I don't want to talk to you about this thing, or I don't want to share with you this thing. There are other kinds of distancing phenomena. Sometimes people are trying to explain it away, especially through religious ideas and ideals, or concepts, or biblical scriptures. And the Bible itself, as beautiful as as a book this is, and for those of you who've been around Spark, you know that we love the Bible around here, but the Bible can often be used as a weapon against somebody to distance yourself from that person, to say, now I'm going to put this somewhere in between us and say, well, if you only understood this particular passage, then you wouldn't be in the situation or the circumstance that you are in. And in a lot of cultural conversations and some conversations that many of us had. I've had a couple of these recently. Dogmas can get in the way too. My ideas, what I actually believe. If you say something to me that rubs up against what I fundamentally believe at the core, something about holding strongly onto that dogma means I can't listen to you. I can't allow what you're saying to me to actually make some sort of connection because it's too much of a threat. So these are all things that are distancing. Oftentimes when it comes to issues of complication, tragedy, hurt, pain, suffering, 
Sometimes one of the distancing things that we do in trying to provide a response to the pain and the suffering is to say exactly what you can do for God to make it better. And if I only deposit this, and you have all heard, I mean, we've all been in those moments where somebody is suffering as a result of something in their life, whether it be a disease or a tragedy or some sort of internal pain or struggle or loss, and somebody will say to you, or maybe you'll even say to yourself, if I just prayed more, if I just read my Bible, if I was only a better Christian. And we hear these things over and over and over again. And once again, these are not responses that bring empathy. In fact, as was mentioned, the response itself keeps you at a distance. And one of the things that was so, I think, insightful about that is that when we do those kinds of things, when we try to participate in theologies or responses or dogmas Oftentimes, that has nothing to do with who God actually is, but has everything to do with how we see or how we think God sees us. Oh, God is saying to me, oh, if you only did this, then you wouldn't be in the situation or the circumstance that you were in. How we view God, how we view this area of suffering, pain, and loneliness, and challenge— can often be a reflection of how we think God sees us. Incarnation speaks to this. In Hebrews chapter 2, since the children have flesh and blood, he too, and here's the key thing, shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death incarnation that once was an outward excuse or response to whatever it is that you're going through declares radically and affirmatively this God is no longer out there as an excuse but has now become flesh and blood so he shares in whatever humanity you are going through that he is also suffering The image in that animation was the cloud over the fox and the cloud over the bear, that the two of them share this together. And it is by this sharing, by Christ, the incarnation into humanity, sharing in this death, it is through that that he might break the power of him who holds that power to death. Incarnation speaks deeply to this idea of connection, speaks deeply to the idea of empathy, speaks deeply to the idea that sometimes what you need in response to a hurt, a pain, a tragedy, a loss, is not somebody to try to explain it away, but somebody who has come down and feels what you feel and takes it upon themselves. And it is through that empathic move that the power of whatever it is that you are going through is broken. The other thing that was mentioned in this video, in this little clip, in order for me to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. And the question about the incarnation is, can God truly know what it is that we are going through? In order for him, for God, to have an empathic response to us, there's got to be something within him that knows the same suffering that we 
do. And again, theologies can get in the way. Well, God is omniscient, omnipresent, and he's he's this huge cosmic divine God. He's so distant, so far away. And it is into that idea that the scriptures write, Hebrews writes again, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. 1 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin. Now think about this in, in the in the lines of empathy, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In order for empathy to happen, something within me has to connect with something within you. And God, who is a big theological concept, once again has come down and is no longer on the outside, but now is on the inside. You sin. Guess what? We have a God who says, I've become that as well. I have taken that upon myself as well. I have been tempted as well. I know what you are going through. And then she mentioned this particular study by Teresa Wiseman. Perspective taking and recognizing their perspective as truth. Staying out of judgment. Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating. This is the path to empathy for connection. And then you have these beautiful, amazing passages where Jesus is at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And all the people there are sad and in tears and wailing and mourning because they have just lost their brother. And it is into that passage, the verse that every high school Christian student wants to memorize because it's the shortest verse in the entire Bible. Jesus wept. Weeps right along with, feels and suffers alongside of the people. To hold that emotion without judgment is a story of a woman who caught in adultery, thrown at Jesus' feet. He bends down, writes in the dirt, writes in the earth. Where are all of your accusers, he says to her. They've all gone away, she says. Neither then do I condemn you. To hold the emotion without judgment. The religious leaders in Jesus' day, during this continual battle, are always trying to find some sort of response, some sort of excuse, some sort of reason why this person has the ailment that they have. And in John chapter 9, a man born blind, this beautiful interchange and this really exposing conversation. Who sinned, they say, this man or his parents? Because clearly the only way to explain the thing that you're going through is somebody must have done something wrong. There's the reason. There's the rationale. There's the response. There, once again, is the distancing phenomena. These aren't people who are being empathic. These are people that are putting, once again, dogma, scripture, ideology in the way. And Jesus responds to them, You don't get it. Nobody sinned. I will not hold judgment. I will not look at this individual and say to this individual or even say to the people around this individual, here's the reason why. Why? Because a reason is not going to be an answer. Instead, this is here for the glory of God. We're going to turn this into something good, redemptive. And he does so by coming 
down. And once again, being with us to feel and to sense and to go through everything that we have gone through. Matthew 2, 22 through 23, a verse that we know very well from our Christmas season. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. Now, if that just maintains itself to be some sort of great theological concept, great. But somehow deep within your soul, and I think deep within the passages of the writings that these people put together, this is about something more, more profound than just a theological idea. A God with us in every sense of sin and pain and suffering. I have this cloud over my head. You know what? The thing that is going to, quote, make it better is really going to be a God who has a cloud over his head as well, who will come in and be with us, who will hear and listen and pay attention to all of my hurts and pains, and who will journey together. And as tempting as it is to try to find some sort of reason and rationale, this God doesn't do that. Comes down, links arms, I know what it's like down here. And I'm so sorry. And it is through that empathic response, an incarnated empathic response, that we get redemption. A quick summary of how dynamic, intimate, empathetic relationships happen is through this kind of axiomatic phraseology. One cannot feel loved if one does not feel known. You cannot feel loved if you don't feel as if somebody else actually knows who you are. You cannot feel known if you do not feel understood. Do you know what I'm going through? Do you feel the same hurts and the pains that I have? And you cannot feel understood if one does not feel heard. And this whole train of thought, this whole endeavor, this whole program of empathy is bound up in our word, incarnation. I want to feel what you feel. I want to hear what you're going through. I want to carry that within me, and together we go. You are not alone. And God is not up there looking down and saying, well, if you had only done this, then you would only be better. And if God isn't doing that, then maybe we should stop that as well both on ourselves as well as on other people. How does Sherry sum it up? Conversation. Conversation cures is her way of saying it. My way of saying it is we go from the out to the in. Reasons, rationales are all out there. Feelings, emotions, pain, suffering, that's deep. You know, when you go through that, there's actually that pit in your stomach that churns. It sits here. And I need somebody that knows what this feels like. The incarnation is God's yearning for connection. Have you ever considered this? Have you ever considered that the incarnation is just not something that you believe? It's supposed to be our awakening to a God who is actually deeply longing to be connected to us. 
incarnation then is also God's calling for us to then connect with each other. If we can embrace this empathic incarnation from God, then that empowers us to then connect and be there for that incarnate Christ, that incarnate good news to other people. And here's the problem. When we do so, it's messy. It's complicated. It is not friction-free. It hurts. It's challenging. It's heavy. But it is so worth it for the redemption of our souls and of humanity. I would put it this way. Incarnation is an assault on the assault on empathy. And so we're in a battle and a struggle and a challenge. For all of us who have our devices, for all of us who live in technology, and by the way, there's been technology all throughout the history of humanity that has constantly come in between these relationships. And as we continually struggle and wrestle with these realities, it is our hope and prayer that we embrace this beautiful incarnation, a God who has come down and has come in with us to feel what we feel, to go with us, to embrace our emotions, to connect what's inside of him with what is inside of us. And that is what is so brilliant and beautiful and redemptive about the incarnation. There's this wonderful song by David Crowder that was brought to my attention after last week's message. And so I put together a little video with the lyrics. And if you're going through challenge and struggle and pain and suffering and all of the myriad emotional turmoil of all that that brings... I'd like to just play this for you for a few moments. Read some of the words. Embrace some of the truth. Be, in, be immersed in the music. And just take a few moments to allow God to communicate once again to you. I hear you. I'm listening. I, too, have inside of me what you have inside of you. Song. 
Father God, thank you for being a God who has come down and who has entered in with us. And I pray that for all of my friends uh, hearing this, that we would not only embrace this beautiful incarnational truth, but we would be embraced by it. And that we would once again be reminded that we are not alone and that you carry this with us. And that you are a God, not just up there, but down here. And not just out there, but in here with us. Help us to link arms with you and lead us. Journey with us through all of this together. Pray in your name. Amen.